Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Mitchell, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to uh, have you along uh, on what is almost leading into spring in Brisbane 2022. Fantastic to have you here. Perhaps uh, just to start with, Mitchell, tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Thanks very much, Richard. Um, I'm the CEO of an organisation called Lives Live Well, and we provide alcohol and other drug support. We also do some mental health, some gambling support, and we, we support people transition from corrective services as well. Okay. And uh, give us a sense of the, the size of the organisation in terms of headcount and where your facilities are and so on. Headcount, we're, we're sitting at about 520, and we've got facilities certainly across the length and breadth of Queensland, mm-hmm. and we also have some services in, in New South Wales, and we're in Orange, Dubbo, Katoomba, Wollongong, and now we're in New South Wales. So we're not in Metro Sydney, mm-hmm. but across across Queensland, we're, we're pretty much wherever you can name, we're basically there. Okay. And uh, I remember from speaking to you uh, recently, the kind of facilities you have are very broad and varied, aren't they? Yes. So as I said, we, we provide services across a range of um, different types of services from mental health to drug and alcohol, but certainly in terms of the drug and alcohol services, we've got services from across a continuum. So from brief and early intervention to community programs to residential services. So we've got eight residential services across Queensland, New South Wales in terms of the, the alcohol and other drugs. And some of those services provide withdrawal support, detox, and some um, family support services as well. So for mothers and young children in, in Orange and New South Wales. And in Queensland, we've got two family support programs where both mums and dads can come in with their, their younger children. They're usually less than about 10 years of age. Um, yeah, and then in terms of mental health, we, we provide, we've got two, two headspaces, one, one in Southport, one at Upper Coomera. Each of those, well, certainly Southport is the busiest headspace in Australia. There are about 100, 100 plus headspaces across Australia. So that's um that's that's something we've also got an early psychosis program down there which is the only one in queensland that's funded through the, the headspace model and we we, we share a, a it's a hub and spoke model and we, we share that with stride who have a have a location a headspace location in meadowbrook which is in logan and then we've got some gambling support work across queensland as well okay and for people who are unfamiliar with uh the term headspace what do you mean by that so that's a youth mental health service and so that's funded by the federal government and that's a that's a basically it's a model where they 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 tender out for a lead agent and we we're the lead agent for two headspaces but as i said there is a there are many of those across australia and so people will go in there for mental health concerns um, gambling concerns but also um, other types of concerns that young people might be experiencing and that will be something like 12 to I might get this bit wrong, um, to about 23, 25. Right. So headspace is particularly targeted at those younger people. They are, very much. Right. So. Okay. And um, you mentioned that they're government funded. Uh, what about the other activities that you're engaged in? Is it all essentially government funded? So all, all of our programs are essentially government funded. So that's state state uh, governments, different departments, as well as federally and then we we do in our residential services there are some modest client contributions that the, the residents make. 
Okay, sure. And uh, in terms of the actual clients, so how do they generally hear about you? Um, often word of mouth can be the website. We take referrals from GPs and other service providers. And so there's there's no, there's no shortage of demand across all, all of our service types. And so, yeah, they, they come from a variety of referral sources. Okay, but it's all voluntary. It is all voluntary. Yes, it right. is. Right. Okay, excellent. Well, I look forward to talking more about uh, Lives Lived Well uh, uh, later on in the podcast. But let's just go back, Mitchell, as I explained. Uh, you know, a lot of the people who listen to these podcasts, they want to hear the stories of CEOs and, you know, how their careers have evolved and so on. So yep. tell us a little bit about, you know, where you were born and mum and dad, brothers and sisters, and we'll just yep. uh, go for a little wander through your career. So I was, I was born in, in Nairobi. Okay. In what they call Kenya now, Kenya. So my my father was in in the, the the Kenya police, and my mother's parents were Salvation Army missionaries, and so that's how they both came to be in in Africa, and then they met, and um, yeah. So I, I lived there for six years. Then they they decided my father's English, my mother's Australian, and they decided, well, do we go to England or do we go to Australia? My father asked his mother, and she said, go to Australia. Right. <laughs> and so so we came to Australia on a boat. And we, we we literally sailed into Sydney Harbour and, and we, we settled in Sydney for a brief period of time. Then we went up to Darwin and I'm old enough to be have been around at the time of the Darwin cyclone. Right. That was so, 74, wasn't it, Mitchell? It was 74. Yeah. And so we lost everything in the Darwin cyclone. And so I ended up in boarding school in Brisbane as a result. Mm-hmm. And my parents um, went to went to Papua New Guinea because they lost everything. We Our insurance ran out in the November before the December cyclone. So they literally lost everything, and Very so nice. they were trying to get some um, build up, build up funds in in Papua New Guinea. They could. My father got paid more if he went to New Guinea. And were were your parents involved with the Salvation Army uh, Church themselves? No, no, right. so, no, not not. My, my mother was when she was younger, mm-hmm. but certainly my father, my father not. I think the the church walls might fall in if he walked in. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> I, the only reason I ask that is because I know some, I have friends who are in the Salvation Army and uh, and they were very active in helping people during the um, 74 cyclone. Yeah, no, no, we, we weren't. I mean, my, my grandfather was still alive at the time, but I, th- I think he moved moved to the Baptist church by that time. Right. So you came to Brisbane in boarding school. Your yep. parents went over to PNG. And did you have any brothers and sisters? I have a sister. Right. And she was, and so my parents really found the only co-educational boarding school they could find. And so that's why we ended up at the school that we did. Which and one was that? That was St. Peter's. Oh, ah, right. Sure. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, while we were there to be together, she never spoke to me while we were there. Right. <laughs> it wasn't the, the cool thing to do, I don't think. So you were the younger brother, were you? Oh, I'm the older brother. Oh, and she still didn't want to hang out with you. No, no, she didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and so, you completed all of your high schooling at St. Peter's. I, yeah, so went there in in grade nine. So I completed okay. my last four years of high school in at St. Peter's. Right, and what did you want to be? What did you want to do when you grew up? When you were in high school, there, there, I, I probably was most interested in in being a pilot, mm-hmm. um, and. Fascinated by planes, but my, my problem is I'm colourblind. Right. And so I, me- I remember going along to um, the Air Force recruitment and they have a lantern test and the lantern test, they're, they're basically just two lights and they're only three colours. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's red, green and white. 
But so lacking in confidence was I, I somehow convinced myself that if I made guesses, I might be better than if I actually tried to determine what the colour was. And so when I finished the test, he said, basically, you see in black and white. Right. <laughs> I, thought, oh, God. <laughs> I had, uh, I've, uh, just the other day, somebody told me that only men are colourblind, that women, there's no, is that true? No, I don't think it is true. I, I think more men are colourblind than women. I, I think it's, and yeah, it's yeah more, more often men than women, but there are there are some women who are colourblind, and it's passed down through the mother. Okay. Um, my my daughter's sons have a have a possibly going to be colourblind. Right. Well, at least you're not bald like me, which apparently is passed down through the mum as well. So uh, there's a silver line. Oh no, I'm I'm going bald. Well, <laughs> and, and nobody will admit to it. I said, I, said to my, I said to my mother, "Was was was your father bald?" She says, "I can't remember." All <laughs> oh, right, okay. So, uh, grand aspirations to be a pilot, you know, uh, uh, shut down by the air force. So, what what happened then? And and so when when I left school, because my father was in the police, and he was certainly before being in the police, he was in the British Army. So I, I had a had a crack at the police force. And I was ex actually accepted into the Northern Territory Police Force. Mm -hmm. And I remember on Christmas Day, um, when I was 17 or 18, deciding, I don't think I want to do that. Mm. So I rang them up and said, no, no, I'm, I, I, I don't want to do that. So I, I, I studied part-time accountancy, as well as I, I worked in a range of places. I actually worked with MBF, which was the, the precursor of BUPA. And I was what was called a trainee administrative executive. And I, I remember the the operations manager saying to me, he said, if, if, if you see me sitting at my desk with my hands behind my head and you think I'm not working, I am. Right. That's work. Yeah. And so I, I, I struggled with the, the accountancy for, for probably um, three, a year and a half, three semesters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as a young 17, 18 year old, I was working 40 hours a week, going to uni three nights a week for three hours and then studying all through the weekend. And that, that got a bit, boring after a while so I actually dropped the accountancy and decided and then I moved into the public service and I was working in stamp duties and that was an extraordinary experience in that you know it was my first exposure to people who drank a lot there right. were people who, who used to we used to be across the road from the pub at central station and these people would go across across the street at morning tea lunchtime and afternoon tea my father doesn't drink and I'd never seen anything like it in my life and I just couldn't get over it mm. and at the same time in those days you were allowed to smoke as well so it was a, a room full of smoke and then I was literally my job was was a, was a clerk and I was just stamping dates on on documents and I thought, hmm, is this the way I want to spend the rest of my life? Maybe it's not. And so, and so then I, I went I went back to uni and I went full time, and I I, uh, I studied management. I remember saying to my mother, who I think probably didn't finish primary school, and that was just the way it was in those days. When I said to her, I'm I'm, I'm giving up my job, I'm going to go to uni. She said, Are You sure you want to do that? You're going to give up a good job? I'm not sure you can do that. Mm. Um, but I did, and um and. Because of the experiences I had in in the years leading up to going full time, I I, di I did reasonably well, and I finished I finished the management degree, and I went and worked for Sequeb, and Sequeb was the electricity provider in in Queensland at the time. It was the time of Joe Jockey Peterson was was the premier, and there was there were electricity strikes, and I was I, I did HR in management, and so one of my jobs was to um, help terminate a lot of employees, and I thought oh. 
maybe there's something else in life here. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I decided because I, I'd always had a bit of an interest in in medicine, but um, because I'd already been studying for three years full time, I decided I'd go into nursing. And in those days, you you hospital trained as a nurse. Yeah. So I, I applied for the Royal Brisbane Hospital and the and the PA Hospital. I got into both. I tossed a coin and decided to go to the Royal Brisbane Hospital. And so I ended up um, at the age of probably about, oh, I would have been about 23. I was a student nurse mm -hmm. and with, with a bunch of 17-year-olds. And, and did you, sorry, Mitchell, did you say the PA? No, the Royal Brisbane. Oh, sorry, being part of the Royal Brisbane. Right, okay. And um, and so in the group that I was in, and there were five groups a year, there was there was about 60, 60 people mm -hmm. and only four of those in those days were males. Mm -hmm. So I was certainly outnumbered and and, and many of many of my my cohort were quite a bit younger than I and um, that was a really interesting experience because you you worked across a whole bunch of different um, ward environments you know medical wards surgical wards um, ICUs neurological wards and you experienced all sorts of different managers bearing in mind I, I'd, I'd finished a, a degree in, in business and um, it's where I, I experienced some horrible horizontal and vertical violence mm. in terms of yeah, it's very hierarchical, and um, it wasn't always pleasant. Mm. And I and I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, maybe I've made a mistake here." But my, the die was cast, and um, and so I, I kept going. I fi I finished nursing, and I, I worked briefly in an orthopedics ward, and then I um I transferred over to the HADS unit at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, this hospital alcohol and drug services, as a registered nurse. And which I which I really quite enjoyed. My pool skills got very good because on weekends you played pool with the residents or the, the clients, and and so then I decided to to further my study and, and and completed a master of health science while I was working part time at the um the Royal Brisbane Hospital. Then somebody suggested there was a Damascus unit, what was the Holy Spirit Hospital in those days, which was a drug and alcohol unit. I used to work there. Uh, so when I was at university, I worked as a theatre orderly for four years, and uh, and I worked at the Holy Spirit. So I remember Damascus very well. So what years were those? Uh, probably, uh, oh, I guess about uh, ninety to no, no, no eighty eight to ninety two, something like that. So I, I would have come in just at the end. I think I, I started in Damascus in about ninety one. Right. So Margaret Vida would have been the the. Director of Nursing. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and Robert Ellis, I think, was the um, hospital administrator. Oh, look, it's uh, a long time ago. I don't recall. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Damascus at the time was really, it was the uh, flagship um, unit of its kind in, in Brisbane, certainly, wasn't it? It was very much. And it had come across from Castledine. So there was a there was a Catholic, Irish Catholic priest called Father Jerry Nicholl, who started at Castle Dine and then the Holy Spirit Sisters persuaded. Well, I think he might have passed, but they, they brought it over from Castle Dine to, to mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit Hospital. And so I went there as a registered nurse. And not long after I arrived, so bearing in mind I'd, I'd completed my master's by then, I had a degree in business, and um, they the, the nurse unit manager left. And so I applied and I, I became the nurse unit manager. And when I was, that was my substantive role for about 12 years. I did, I, I did act in other roles in the hospital. I, I acted for probably about 18 months as the, um, the assistant director of nursing and, and then for about four weeks as the director of nursing. But my substantive role was always 
as the nurse the nurse manager of, of Damascus. And it it then the, the Holy Spirit sisters sold the Holy Spirit Hospital to a for profit. And so I think it was um two thousand and three. And so within within about well within weeks of it moving to a for profit, I knew I was in the wrong place. Mm. Can I just before you go, Mitchell so you you mentioned your dad didn't drink, you're working the public service, you're seeing all of these people essentially, you know, almost functional alcoholics going and drinking, you know, uh, morning tea, lunch and afternoon tea. What was it that attracted you to particularly working in this space of, um, you know, addiction uh, uh, versus, you know, you said you started in a, um, a different kind of medical ward. So, you know, what is it that, excited you or was your calling the very fact that you've remained in that space for so many years yeah i mean i, th I think it's partly what you said so my father never drank but I, he did before i can recall right so i suspect he had a drinking problem mm -hmm. which, which he managed by stopping he's the he's the kind of guy that's very determined he had a he had a heart attack in his mid-60s and um, he was lying in bed and there was a grand medical round and they came up to his bed and the, and the consultant cardiologist said, um, do you smoke? And he said, no, I gave up. And he said, when did you give up? I gave up in the ambulance on the way to hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and true to his word, he never smoked again. Right. And, and so I, I suspect he, he employed the, that same discipline with respect to his drinking. Mm -hmm. I think and I'm, I may have this, I may misrecollect this, but I think he ended up in a ditch after you know, a night of drinking and, and, and decided, right, you know, that, that's it for me. And so when I went to work in the public service and I saw all that drinking, it was just, I was totally fascinated mm. with what, what, what I saw and, and didn't really understand it. So when I completed the master's degree, I, I certainly did focus on drug and alcohol. And it was just something that I, I was intrigued by and mm -hmm. then became very interested in, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, Damascus is privatised. You decide that's not the right place for you. So where do you move to from there? Yeah. So um, my wife was pregnant with our third child. She wasn't working, and I went to a lower-paying job. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I went to work for what was what was um, St Luke's in those days, which became Spiritus, and then I think eventually Anglicare. And so I, I worked in um, community nursing, mm -hmm. and I was I was a manager of a, of a, a, a region or an area, and um, I didn't know anything about it. It was different types of funding, certainly very different from a hospital environment, which I'd been working in for some number of years. And so I what I did was I, I when I when I can't do something as well as I would like, I work harder at it. And so I remember going into work on, on Saturdays just so that I'd get my head around what I needed to do and needed to learn. And I, I did that for a year. And then I I um Got another position internally within within St Luke's, which was managing HIV services across Queensland. And what what had happened at the time was, the AIDS Council in Queensland had always previously provided services to HIV people in in, in Queensland, and then that that funding moved from from Quack as it was to to St Luke's, and that was a that was a very controversial decision in many ways because it was considered a, a religious-based organisation and, and there, there were some understandably very upset people. And so there was a, it was a, it was a difficult time in some ways, sort of negotiating, going around Queensland, speaking with um, 
representatives of the of the community about the, the change in funding. Um, but nonetheless, a, a, a really, really wonderful experience that I'm that I'm grateful that I had. And then, and then from there, uh, so about after a year of doing that, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Would you like to apply for a CEO role?" And I, I say without a word of um, a lie, I, I never would have applied for it if somebody hadn't tapped me on the shoulder. So mm-hmm. I, I I applied as I was asked, and then somehow I got the job, and um, and that was the Alcohol and Drug Foundation Queensland. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a smallish organisation. It was probably about forty people, um, and they they offered services primarily in in southeast Queensland, and they but they did have a service up in in Townsville, and you know I was I was probably left with a few legacies from from the from the previous CEO, and the first year was a struggle. We 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 didn't have financial reports, so I was I was driving a car with. With a tarpaulin over the windscreen, couldn't see where, couldn't see where we were going, um, and then we, we lost a considerable hundreds of thousands of dollars in that first year. Mm. And yeah. so, just before you go, on, Mitchell, so I mean, you said you were tapped on the shoulder. It was nothing that you would have you know, applied for, and yet you know, you started by with an accounting, starting an accounting degree, and then you had a management degree, and so on. So when you say that, it was was the fact that you didn't think you would have applied for it because it just wasn't something that you were attracted to doing or you didn't feel confident or capable enough for that kind of role or what was the hesitation? I didn't feel like I was good enough for the role. Right, okay. And so, you know, the injunction my mother offered me when I went to uni was in my head, you know, maybe you're not good enough for that. Right. And um, and so, and, and she'd, she'd, she'd offered that injunction to me several times throughout my life, actually. Um, Mums are awesome like that, aren't they? They can be. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but obviously, and so the person that tapped you on the shoulder, was that somebody on their board or was that a... No, that was the, that was the CEO, actually. The right, CEO, okay. The Alcondro Foundation Queensland, yeah. Okay. So the first year, a bit challenging, but you were there for seven years. So uh, you obviously uh, got the ship, you know, back on track. Well, I mean... I- I remember thinking to myself at the end of the first year, well, at least I've got one year of, of CA on my CV that I can I can take down the track with me. But the, the board were were kind enough to keep me on, and um, we worked hard at doing doing better. Mm-hmm. And so we we did. We we grew a little. Um, we grew. We, 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 I mean, we probably grew quite significantly for a small organisation. But one of the things that we were concerned about was um, we we used to have a an EAP an employee assistance program. And you could see that the the entry of international providers of EAP across Australia, and we knew that wasn't our bread and butter, and so we 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 sold that. Oh, so and you offered an EAP uh, as a service? We did, we which is a... obviously more broad than just purely you know alcohol and drug. Um, it, is, it is much broader counselling. Yeah, it is much broader, and and so we we divested ourselves of that and then we, we looked around and said we need to we need to be stick what we stick with what we're good at and maybe we need to partner mm-hmm. maybe we need to find another organization in a similar situation because it's possible that there, there are other organizations that are going to be bigger that are going to compete with us at the same time i think the governments were were 
preferred larger organizations rather than smaller organizations. Mm-hmm. And so we we had discussions with the Gold Coast Drug Council. Mary Alcorn was the CEO of the Gold Coast Drug Council. They had Mirakai Residential Service. We had Logan House. We were of a similar size. We might have been a little bit larger, um, but not so significantly. And we agreed over a period of about a year to, to merge. And in, in merging, we decided to to change our name. So from the Gold Coast Drug Council and the Alcorn Drug Foundation Queensland to become Lives Live Well. And in becoming Lives Live Well, we really wanted to, to demonstrate our vision for the people that we supported in our name. And so we, f- we first thought of Live Life Well, but that was taken by a New South Wales government department. Mm-hmm. We ended up with, with Lives Live Well. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh... You mentioned the the organisation that you were merging with had their own incumbent CEO. So um, what was their role in the new business moving forward or did they exit? So so Mary was very close to retirement. Uh-huh. And so she retired and, um, and then I became the CEO across the, the new entity of, of Lives Live Well. Right. And that was back in 2012, so about 10 years ago now. It was 10 years ago. Okay, yeah. awesome. And so, Mitchell, um, you know, in, in that last 10-year period, uh, you know, what, what would be some of the key milestones or your key achievements that you'd look back on and, you know, really feel proud in terms of how it shaped the business? Um, well, we, we, we've certainly merged a couple of more times, and so uh-huh. there are significant events. I, I think it is that I was I was fortunate enough to, to be offered the opportunity to go to, to Stanford briefly. Uh-huh. And we, we, one of the things that we, we focused on was strategic planning. And so in, a, in about 2015, we, we re- revamped our strategic plan and we worked very hard at um, identifying our strategic anchors. And, and I think that was a pivotal moment. So our strategic anchors are around, the first one is evidence-informed services delivering good outcomes. And so for me, that's that's as simple as if, if you have a health issue and you go to see uh, a doctor or, or a clinician, whoever it is, you want to know well, what they're, they're offering you has an evidence base to it and and works. That was the question when, when I worked in Damascus. I was asked often, is it going to work? Is it going to help my partner, spouse, mm-hmm. parent? Um, and the person themselves would ask, is, is, this, is this going to work? And so does it work is a critical question. And so, you know, we that became a strategic anchor. So evidence-informed services delivering good outcome. The, se- the second strategic anchor was around engaged and capable staff. And so Richard Branson talks about the importance of um, the engagement of people that work in his organisation. And he says, if you look after them, they'll look after, uh, look after the customers. And so we also decided to, to give some emphasis and focus to, to the people that work in the organisation importantly. When, when, and the third strategic anchor is, is, is around being, being efficient and effective. Um, when we first merged with, with the Gold Coast Drug, Drug Council and became Lives Live Well, Campbell Newman was in, was in government and was very cost-conscious. We, we lost funding because we didn't sharpen our pencil enough. And so it, it said cost and quality are important. Quality is more important, but you've got to pay attention to cost. Mm-hmm. When, when I was in... In Catholic healthcare, um, there, there was an expression: "There's no mission without margin," and it's a really important thing. You, you, you can't deliver on your mission if you if you if you're not 
got the funds. Mm-hmm. So, so the the focus on those three strategic anchors was really important. Um, I've all I've also been um, I've always been taken by Good to Great and Jim Collins. Yep. And, and so so that's that's strongly influenced a lot of what we've done across this organisation over the last little while. And so we've got um we've got a flywheel, which is really important, and 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 and. Focusing on the flywheel has helped us to become more effective in terms of innovation, executing on innovation, and and going forward. And Mitchell, what what exactly do you mean when you're referring to a flywheel? So a flywheel is is in is in is in is in good to great, and so Amazon has a flywheel, mm-hmm. and basically you you work out what you, what you, what makes you successful, and then. You, once you've worked out what what or what can make you successful, then you work really hard to deliver on the each element in the flywheel. So at the top of our flywheel is 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 innovation, and so we need to be innovative. One of the things that we do is we have a a relationship with the University of Queensland. That relationship's about six years old now. Uh, the organisation is invested in that relationship. And that's partly how we get the evidence-informed services. But one of the things we're doing at the moment, which is really exciting, is brief and early intervention. So uh-huh. we're, do, we're doing things in that space that's not common in, in the alcohol and other drug realm. And so we're, we're providing support to people um, as, as soon as they walk in the door because we've sent them screening tools and outcome measures before they see us. So when they, when they first present, we've got a picture of them already. So we can begin immediately to start talking about the sorts of things that might concern them. Why is that important? Because it is often people don't come in more than once or twice. Mm. If they're only coming in once and you spend time gathering a history, it might be that you don't see them again. Mm. And so if you can provide them with support straight away and you don't see them again, um, that's likely to be more effective. Interesting, and uh, and so obviously uh, your experience with Harvard was very useful. What about in terms of you know obviously stepping into that CEO role and, uh, originally and thinking I might have some skill gaps here, and as the role has evolved over the time, you know how do you keep your um, your strategic and leadership perspective fresh and and current are there are there particular things do you have a coach or mentors or do you yeah. do you go and um uh look at what other organizations are doing regularly to, to see what you can learn what's your what's your secret source so i don't know if i have a secret source but i've been very lucky um i had a very good chair uh-huh. and he and he his name was barry his name is barry scott and um he's no longer our chair no longer on our board but he was somebody who was CEO of Freedom Furniture. He worked okay. um, in, and provided. He had a um, background that was very different from not-for-profit, but he was an incredibly insightful and wise man. And um, so he used to tell me anecdotes, which all, there was always a lesson in it. He encouraged me to to have a coach. He also or attend an organization like a peer organization like tech or mm-hmm. Sigma Institute. That's yeah. So I did that for a long time. He also encouraged me to go to the residential colleges um, in the United States, which I which I did. I've done three times, in fact. Um, I, I'm, I'm no longer in tech, but I, I still have, I actually have 
would you believe, two coaches to this day. And, and so each of those people provide um, some difference and unique perspectives for me. And, and, and really, the important thing is that they, they continue to challenge me. That's one of the things that, that Barry did. Mm. Um, Barry was, was kind of scary when you first meet him because, you know, if you didn't have the answer, you knew the next time you needed to have the answer. Mm. But it was a wonderful experience. And um, I'm so very grateful for, for, for particularly his role as, as the chair and and in any mentoring and and supporting me to grow into the role. Mm. It's interesting, Mitchell. I I also have two coaches. Uh, I have a, a business coach and a personal coach, and I run my own version of tech called uh, the Sounding Board. And and I agree with you; those things are so. Uh, Having that peer uh, feedback mechanism to make sure that your thinking is uh, uh, appropriate and and uh, on track is so valuable. And um, and so now, if we look out to the future, you know, uh, you've been in the role for ten years. So if you look into the future, what are the sort of things you're excited about for both lives lived well and also for your own career? So for lives that well, I mean, I, I think that that first strategic anchor, which is evidence-informed services delivering good outcomes, we are translating research into practice. Mm -hmm. that, that first step, brief and early intervention that I talked about is an example of that. We're doing stuff in, in residential services, um, which is really, really quite wonderful. Um, we're also measuring the outcomes increasingly well. So we, we, we can answer that question, does it work? And if it's not working, we 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 can alter alter that. So that's a really exciting thing. Um, I, I think I think it is that we're an organisation that's, you know, one of our values is why not why not what's next, and so it's not a matter of saying oh where we are we're satisfied with is what can what what can we improve, where can we go, how can we do better, and so we're always looking looking to improve. And and so for me that's that's exciting. Um, for me, in terms of my career, it's it's really it's about continuing on on the journey. So we recently, for example, changed our values, and values in organisations are often things like one word: mm -hmm. dignity, respect, compassion. Um, we, did, we did a bit of work looking at um, what Patrick Patrick Lencioni writes about. And there's a there's an airline in the United States, and I can never remember all three values, but it's Southwest Airlines, and, and one of the two of the values are a, a, a servant's heart and a warrior's spirit. Mm -hmm. And and I, I really like the idea of not not a one word value. Mm. And so we we did some work, um, and we, we we talked to people within the organisation, board, and outside the organisation, and we we came out we came out with some values which I th I think really well describes us the fourth of those values is leave a positive wake uh -huh. and and you know a boat leaves a wake but we leave we leave a wake when we when we speak to people when we leave a room um when we leave an organization when, when we've spoken to a client when we leave when we leave life and so so for me the thing that that i'm really dedicated to is leaving a positive wake uh -huh. and that's in this place but it's also outside of this place as well. Mm. It's interesting also uh, how the correlations. I was at a, a conference on Friday and there was quite a lot of conversation around corporate values and about the fact that a one-word value 
is just too open to interpretation. So dignity, you know, um, could mean something completely differently to, you know, many members of your business. So a statement, you know, where it, it clarifies the value is much more meaningful. So it sounds so you've done that very well. Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly right because as many people as there are, they'll have a different view of what respect or dignity might mean. Whereas I, whereas I think our values, our first value is um, um, humble, human, and and full of hope. Okay, and that's that's the, that's the beginning of the journey. So right, we're, we're, we're I think humility is important for an organisation, but for the individuals within it, uh -huh. you know, human, we make mistakes, um, we're fallible, and so we we believe here in first and second chances because it is the people, certainly within the alcohol and drug realm, might might relapse, uh -huh. and, and and that's. That's a natural part of a relapsing condition, and full of hope is being optimistic. Mm. And optimism is is really important, but it's it's not only just for the clients, but it's but it's for each other and for life. I think. Mm -hmm. Lovely, what beautiful uh, values! And I imagine COVID has not assisted from a, the perspective of you know. I speak for myself. You know, suddenly I'm stuck at home, and you know I'm not getting out and running around town as much. It, it you know drinking you know becomes much more accessible and kind of uh acceptable and uh i'm sure there are a lot of people who uh are now questioning how much they've been drinking so um mm. yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's right in terms of you know people are isolated particularly in in, in places like victoria and, and new south wales or you know some of our new south wales services they they were had lockdowns for longer than we did in queensland they sure did it certainly impacts people. It certainly mm. impacts people. And what about for your own career, Mitchell? I mean, you know, essentially you've been with this organisation for 15 years. Uh, uh, do you have aspirations to do other things or do you think this is going to be your uh, uh, job for life? At the moment, I'm living the dream. <laughs> and, and and so I've been I've been very involved with this place. As you said, it is, it is now for 17 years. And, and it's very much a, a part of me. So, but I but I'm only here at the the behest and the grace of of the board. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, nothing is certain. Um. But I but I very much enjoy what I'm doing, and and believe that that you know that I'm contributing to a positive way. Oh, that's excellent. And uh, last question before I let you get on with no doubt a very busy day. When you're when you're not at work, Mitchell, what are the sort of things you like to do to keep the tank full and uh, enjoy that time away from work? I've, I've always exercised. I really enjoy exercise. Um, I've, I've competed in triathlons when I was a bit younger, but but even to this day, I've I, I ride and swim. I stopped running probably a couple of years ago. And now I, I, I ride on a stationary bike because a year ago, unfortunately, I was I was hit by a car. Right. And um and my, my wrist is not what it was once, and so my my family demands that I I, I don't risk that again. Uh -huh. And so I sit on a stationary bike. I, I also really love gardening, um, where I can. It's a bit harder now with the wrist than it was in the past, um, but I enjoy that. And and I've I've got three wonderful children and, and a beautiful wife, and I and I very much enjoy. My, my time with them um, my, my son's just booked us into the, the AFL final between the between the Lions and and Richmond I think they're playing okay Thursday week so so that's going to be an enjoyable experience excellent well look Mitchell I really appreciate your time and uh, it's been great to get an insight into lives of will and also your own career and uh, I wish you all the very best 
Thanks very much, Richard. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncovertheHiddenJobMarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.